Okay, well, it's great to be with you. Uh, As you know, we're in a series called When the Spirit Comes, and I want to tell you a little story about myself just as we begin. Uh, I grew up uh, going to a fairly traditional uh, church. I went to a Methodist church. My parents were both Methodists and had been growing up. My grandparents were Methodists. My granddad was actually a Methodist minister. My great-aunt was a Methodist lay preacher. I think all the people before them in the next generation were all Methodists. If anybody had any pets in our family, they were all Methodists as well, which is an interesting sideline meant that my whole family were teetotal, um, which led to some interesting discussions with my grandma when my cousin Chris got a job managing an off-license, but as a whole different story. And the church I grew up in was full of good people I liked. Um, I think people genuinely born again, many of them there, uh, but really, we didn't ever talk about the Holy Spirit. And increasingly, as a child, kind of growing up and then becoming a young adult, if I'm honest, I found the services they had sometimes irrelevant and, if I'm really honest, increasingly quite boring. You know, we would sing hymns. I don't have a problem with hymns. But as a kid growing up in that church, I, you know, I have to confess that they would have the number of which songs they were going to use up on the board and I would look through the hymn book to work out, oh my goodness, how many verses have these hymns got? Six verses, seven verses. I was amazed at how these guys could write eight or nine verses songs that seemed to go on forever. And uh, probably the real killer for me was, when I look back, was I had no expectation that God would ever show up at church. Um, that he might attend the services which were supposed to be all about him. It never really crossed my mind. God was like a concept for me. He was far away. I kind of believed, but I didn't have any experience of him. I kind of thought that maybe he also thought the hymns were too long. (laughs) Now, the really funny thing about the church when I was growing up was, the ironic thing was that when I was 11 years old, uh, I moved from what they called the junior church to the senior church. Okay, And they did this thing in my church, which is quite sweet, but quite strange as well. Where if you, it was like moving from King's Kids up into kind of like the youth work. And they'd do this thing where you'd line us up and they'd make, with the kind of King's Kids workers and then make us walk across into the kind of new senior church. Anybody else go to a church where they did that? Okay? Nope, it's just my church. Okay. So we did this and, they'd give, and they gave us a gift, which is quite nice. And they gave me a book, uh, which made, the title which made my, my youngest boys laugh because it's called A Mighty Rushing Wind. And if you have young boys, that means something else. But they gave me a book, which is a paraphrased version of the Acts of the Apostles. My non-charismatic, which basically means didn't believe in the gifts and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst, my non-charismatic traditional church, when I was 11 years old, gave me a book all about the presence of God in the midst of his people and the Acts of the Apostles and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I did something as an 11-year-old boy that no 11-year-old boys are supposed to do when they're given a church, a book from church. I read the book, okay? It's not what anybody ever expects an 11-year-old boy to do. But I read this book, and I remember reading this book and thinking, genuinely, without overdramatizing, I thought, if this is true, like, if God could actually do that, you know, rather than being a concept, could be present and active and in our midst, and we could get to experience him, then I'm interested. I, I'm in. I, that's what I want. That's the reason I'm here. I'm not interested in 
I'm not interested in a fairy tale or a myth or a nice story that was never true. I am interested in a God who could do stuff and change things and be active. And I could know, and I could know that I'm known by him. I'm interested. And that was what I began to read. It's, it's ironic, isn't it, that a non-charismatic church should give me a book about the breakout of the Holy Spirit. It's a bit like a vegetarian family giving their son a season ticket to Nando's or a book of vouchers for Morley's, isn't it? I was interested. I read, um, or I saw on the BBC News recently, some of you may have seen this, they did a, they did a coverage of um, an item on a family in Mexico uh, whose daughter now lives in California. I think she lives in San Diego. She grew up in Mexico City. And they're divided at, at the, the boundary between Mexico and the States by a, by a wall. It's, it's thousands of kilometers long, this wall they've built. And this mum, they interviewed the mum and they interviewed the daughter. And the only way that the daughter and the mum meet now is at the wall and they can put their fingers through the grate. That's, that's as close as they can touch. Just their fingers ending. And in this program, they, for 20 minutes, they open the gate this rusty old gate that they, for 20 minutes, six families who were in the same situation got to meet for three minutes each, where they hugged, and then they go back the other side of the wall. And that's what my experience of God was like. It was like the closest I ever got was fingers through the grate. But in this book, in the Acts of the Apostles, in the, in the kind of series that we're looking at, when the Spirit comes, it's like God opens the gate. Yeah? God opens the gate wide. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He opens the gate, and it doesn't close. And we get to know him, and we get to experience him, and we get to know what it's like for him to be in our midst. And that's what I'm after. I believe probably that's what you're after as well. So what we're going to read now, when we read the Acts of the Apostles, we are talking about a dynamic presence of God in our midst. And when we come together, that's what we're after. So I'm going to read to you now from Acts chapter 2. And... And we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And this is possibly, possibly the most famous passage in Acts 2, or in, in the whole of the Acts. I mean, maybe you could say that actually the coming of the Spirit in Pentecost is the most famous. But this one is right up there as well because it talks about the birthing of the church. And it describes what the church should look like, what the qualities of the relationship should be like, what, what happens to these people who meet Jesus and the Spirit comes and what suddenly happens amongst them and therefore through them. So I'm going to read it to you and then we're going to ask God to teach us. But before we do, we're going to, we're going to pray together and ask God to come now. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this series and we want to pray, God, that you'd speak to us now. And as we look at your word, I want to pray you take you know, what I bring and you breathe your life into it. And we want to ask you, God, to speak to us. We're hungry for you, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, Acts 2, verse 42 says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, if you read 
the book of Acts, you'll see there's all sorts of fireworks going off everywhere. There's power, there's healing, there's prophetic promise and words. But the centerpiece of Acts is the birthing of the church, the birthing of this brand new community and the implications all throughout that part of the world and into history for now. That's what Acts is all about. And that's what you see in this passage. You see God not only restoring people, so rescuing this person, rescuing that person, rescuing that person, restoring them to himself, but also you see God now restoring people to one another. And that's what you see in Acts 2. You see the product of the Holy Spirit, not just saving people, but restoring them to one another. And the word in Acts 2, 42 to 47, that is used to summarize, if you like, that whole thing, the generosity, the meeting together, the praying together, the evangelistic outbreak, the, whole, the word that summarizes the whole thing you see in Acts 2 is this word, together. All that the believers were together. Now, that word has certain connotations for me, which is to do with an advert that I saw years ago. I don't know if you remember this advert. There was an advert. Does anybody remember this image? Okay, this is an advert from a Prudential advert, okay, which is this couple. I think they made a series of them. And basically, this guy's from Birmingham. And they, their phrase again and again they used was, we want to be together. And basically, if you watch the advert, he wants to be with her. And basically, you know, he's not a particularly adventurous guy. He wants to kind of enjoy the garden. Or, and watch TV, where she wants to get a yacht and sail around the world, but she doesn't really want to sail around the world with him. That's the problem. And you get this veneer of togetherness. Sometimes in churches, you can get a kind of veneer of togetherness. It's, it looks good on the surface, but underneath there isn't really any kind of connection, any kind of relationship. But Acts 2 is not about that kind of togetherness. This is about like a, an intense, relentless, committed, compassionate togetherness. And Steve spoke last week. He said, he talked about the mark of Holy Spirit activity is basically in the end that people get saved. So you'll see healings and power and prophetic words, and that's what we want, all those things. But they are, the Bible describes as signs. They're like signposts pointing towards God's kingdom, that God's real in other words. It's like, it's his kingdom breaking in now, and one day we'll know it fully. Now that is true, but equally true is this. Not only is it people getting saved that is the mark of the Holy Spirit activity, but the mark of the Holy Spirit's activity is that when people get saved, they get birthed into a brand new family. Okay, the, the New Testament knows nothing about, it's, it doesn't reference in any way People getting born again and then continuing on their own as Christians. It just never happens. It's just, it's just not there. You know, there's no people don't go home and just watch God TV and that's just their Christian faith. It's always about they are born again into a people. God comes after me, God calls me, but always, always, always makes me part of us. Yeah? You read through Acts, you read through the epistles, again and again, it's all about what God wants to do amongst us. In fact, the biblical narrative is about God wanting to call a people to his name, not just about us. Not just about me, but about us. And the Bible has a huge amount to say about this togetherness. In Ephesians, Paul talks about togetherness. He uses the word unity. And the Bible, in fact, if you read it through this lens, you'll find that most of the New Testament is about how do we relate together? How do we get on together? How do we deal with conflict together? How do we kind of get harmony together? 
It's all about that. Now, why is it so critical? Why is the New Testament like again and again and again going on and on about how we relate together, how we, how we handle this harmony? How do we do this? Well, I think because of this. Because this sense of togetherness that you read in Acts 2, this sense of unity that you read in Acts 2, is not just the product of Holy Spirit activity. Like, God brings this to birth, okay? No one starts selling their stuff and giving it to the poor just because they do, right? No one does that. No one just starts living the way they were living just because they do. God is doing something in them and bringing this sense of unity to birth, okay? But it's critical, not just because the Holy Spirit is doing that, but because of this. Because unity and togetherness, this sense of community that you read in Acts 2, that we touch together and we're going after together, that is also the most fertile context from which God seems to want to do everything he wants to do. It's not just the product of Holy Spirit activity. It is also, if we get it right and we keep this sense of connection and and commitment and unity, it is also the most fertile context within which we get to see God do all that he wants to do. Now, there's a mystery there. And if you read in John 17, and we're going to read a passage from that right at the end, Jesus prays for all the believers. And he says, he basically prays, I'm going to pray that all the believers who follow me, that's us, I'm praying that they will be one, just, he says, just like Jesus, you and me, me and the Father are one. And then he talks about this mystery that we are now, through Jesus, included into the oneness of the Trinity. Now, there seems to be some kind of spiritual dynamic that when we are unified, when we deal with disharmony, when there is breakdown in relationship and we get it right and we forgive and we sort things through, when there is unity... We connect right into the heart of what God is, who he is, and we create a, a, like the most fertile context in which God can move in the way that he wants to move. Let me give you some examples of that, okay? One of the most famous passages on this would be Psalm 133. It says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now note, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. There's a connection, in other words, between unity and blessing, between togetherness and seeing God move fully. It's the product of God's Holy Spirit activity, but also if we get it right, we see more of God move, in other words. Okay, Acts 2, interestingly, Acts 2, 42 to 47 says all the believers were together. Now, you read at the start of Acts 2, when Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit breaks out in a new way in church history. Well, it says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, what is that a reference to? Well, clearly they're in, physically they're in the same space. But I think that is also a reference to a sense of alignment and commitment there's something about we're together. Yeah, we could be in the same room and we are together, or we can be in the same room and not together, right? And Acts 2, Psalm 133, is about being together, like being ruthless about harmony and unity and relationships and being ruthless when that, when that gets undermined, when we get it wrong, being ruthless about it. Jesus says this in Matthew 18, Again, truly, I tell you, If two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them. 
by my Father in heaven. For there two or three gather in my name. There am I with them. That tells you two things. First of all, this. When we gather together, there is something unique about God's presence with us. In other words, I get to experience God in a unique way when we are with other believers that I don't get to experience in quite the same way on my own. Yeah? Again and again, God says, I'm after a people. You see it through the Old Testament. I'm going to gather a people. I'm going to dwell in their midst. Okay, that is exactly what Jesus is referring to. When we come together, he is here. We don't have to twist his arm. Sometimes we experience more of his presence. He reveals more of who he is, but he is here. The second thing it teaches us is this. There is something about believers praying and agreeing together that, rela- that seems to unlock some kind of spiritual power. Let me give you an example of this. A few weeks ago, uh, we were meeting in our small group in our home. Uh, we meet with a, a, a whole bunch of friends, and we were talking about uh, a story in the Gospels where Jesus says, uh, I want you to pray and not give up, which sounds incredibly simple, but often we don't pray and we do give up, right? We're good at not praying and we're good at giving up. So he says, pray, don't give up, pray, don't give up. So we said, let's do this, and let's pray specifically so that we know if God's already heard us. So I got together with a friend of mine, Reese, and another guy, Andy, and we were chatting, and we said, Reese, what can we pray for? And he said, well, we're trying to buy this flat. And the problem is, is the guy we're buying it from, he has a tenant at the moment who's basically becoming a squatter, and he won't leave. And they keep saying he's going to leave, and he keeps not leaving, and this is going on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And it all feels very fragile as to whether they're even going to get this flat. Okay? And they've been trying for ages to buy this place, and then other places before so we're like, let's pray. That seems like a good idea. I'm a pastor. Let's pray, okay? So we pray. Now, I can't explain this. I don't, I don't know. But all I know is as we prayed, I got a sense of faith. And we prayed. I remember praying. I said, God, we're asking you that within two weeks, this guy's gone. And it just felt It felt right. We prayed it together. We agreed. It felt like we lined up with God and we agreed. And we felt like God heard us. And then we all went our separate ways. Two weeks later, I walk into church. I see Reese. He's playing in our band. I said, how's the flat? He says, the guy's still there. Said that was going to move out on Thursday. We haven't moved out again. And it's like, oh. But he said, it's two weeks today since we prayed for it. I'm like, okay. Anyway, I can't remember if it's later that day or maybe the next day. I get a text from Reese saying, two weeks to the day, the guy's gone. Now, I don't know. That could be a coincidence. If you know me at all, I am not big into hype, okay? I'm like the opposite guy. I want to dial it down because I want it to be real. But it felt to me like it was real. It felt like we agreed. There is something about unity which seems to allow God to move and do what he wants to do. That's what these verses are about. Something about the preciousness of connection that he establishes that we need to cultivate and maintain. And we need to be really, really vigilant about it. Because there is an enemy who wants to sow disharmony. One more verse. Jesus says this in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another Right, this is a command, okay? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to be evangelistically fruitful as a church, if you want to make a statement to the world, 
make a statement by the quality of your unity and relationships. It's a powerful, powerful thing. We know that. We know it's a powerful negative message when church splits. Yeah, some of you have lived through that. When there's a power struggle in a church where people sow gossip and slander everywhere. Okay, similarly, that is a very powerful negative message. That's why unity is so important that we guard. Now, this unity that you see in Acts 2, that appears to be the context not only produced by God, but through which God acts even more than we've known, guess who's given the responsibility to protect it? We are. Okay? Three types of unity that Paul talks about in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 2 and 4. I'm going to give you a real quick, like, guided tour, okay? In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about a unity which is already done, already established, already there, okay? He talks about the fact that we were all enemies, now that there's no Jew, no Gentile, and that God is bringing together a one new humanity, Okay? In other words, at the cross, Jesus not only breaks down the barriers between us and him, but breaks the barriers between all of us, between different cultures and different generations, so that we can come together. In other words, when you become a believer, it's not that you just get restored with him, but the potential to be restored together, and we get a new identity, which means this. I am, first, a Christian. Secondly, I'm white British from downtown Bishop's Dortford in Hertfordshire, which is a pretty rough place to grow up. No, it's not really. Okay? It means that you are first a Christian, second Nigerian, first a Christian, second Romanian, whatever it is, okay? One new humanity has been done. It's good to be, like, proud of our cultural heritage. That's really great. But the first presenting part of your identity is who you now are as a Christian. And if it's our cultural identity first, that actually can create a barrier in terms of connection, Right? It's unity with diversity. It's not uniformity, it's unity. It doesn't mean we have to look the same, have the same preferences. It doesn't mean that at all. It means, first of all, we are Christians, we're unified, and then there's diversity within that. Now, that's established and done at the cross. Also, in Ephesians 4, if you read it through, it's worth reading it through, it talks later about a unity which we are maturing towards. We're given pastors, prophets, evangelists, all those things so that we mature towards unity of the faith. It's a bit like if you get married, the Bible says you're one. There's no question, though, 10 years, 20 years of a good marriage, you're more one when you, than you were when you got married. Okay? There's a deepening, a maturing, a growing towards. And Paul says there's a unity which has happened, there's a unity you're going towards. Now, Ephesians 4 critically says this, okay? Verse 1 to 3, and this is where you and I come in right now. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, Paul says, I urge you. You've got to get the sense of, like, intensity. I urge you. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, the verb that Paul uses when he talks about making every effort is not a, it's not a casual thing. Okay, this is like intense. It's like about urgency. It's like now, 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 do it now. Don't, don't be casual with this. This is not like an optional extra. This is like fundamental stuff. Ah, it's like Paul's like, do it now. It's your job. Don't be casual. Make 
every effort. In other words, where there's disharmony, where there's disagreement, where, there's, where someone's fallen out, where people have said things that hurt you, sort it out. Because it's not just your connection that counts it. It affects the whole fabric of the, of the family. And that affects how much we can create a context where we see God do all he wants to do. So sort it out. Now, like most things in church, it's easier to say than to do. It's much easier to talk about it than to, be, to live like this. So what do we do? Well, I think God knows, doesn't he? God knows that we are gifted at factions. We're gifted at, at kind of like power struggles. The world is full of churches that have gone that way. God knows that we're more insecure and driven by our own egos than our, and insecurities than we like to admit. And he knows that community is hard for us. Connection can be hard because we all come a bit broken, right? All of us. And it means that community is full of people who sometimes you're going to find a bit tricky. That's what happens. As soon as you get close to people, you find out they're not quite as nice as you thought they were. Henry Newon once said famously, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. God also knows how affected we are by the culture we live in, particularly those of us who have been brought up in this culture, but probably for all of us to a degree. Okay? Western culture is dominated by some key values, one of which is individualism, one of which is consumerism. In other words, what that means is we tend to think first about me before I think about us. Okay, that may not be, the, that probably isn't the case maybe for some of you where you grew up, but it's definitely true growing up in England. I think me before us, and it means I tend to think about what I can get before what I can give because I'm a consumer. That's how I've been brought up. Now that seeps in inevitably into church, doesn't it? Or can do. It can seep into the way we view church. In other words, if that affects me deeply, I will think of church like this. Church is a place I attend when I feel that I need to or want to, to get something to help me so I can go and do my thing. That's an individualistic, consumerist view of church. It's, something I, it's a place I attend when I feel like it, to get something I want, to me to go out and do my thing when I leave. That can seep into all of us. But actually, Acts 2 and New Testament church is not like that at all. What you see in Acts 2 is a picture of a church where church is a body and a family that I am part of, which I'm born again by the grace of God, that I'm aware of his goodness to me and his investment in me, and I get to play my part and serve in the body because that's the best way I could live my life anyway, and I allow, hopefully get to see God do all that he wants to do and to do his thing, not my thing. It is a completely different way of looking at church. And we are affected by our culture often more than we realize. That's the kind of church described in Acts 2. That's why we're doing, you know, an offering. That's why, because we want to give beyond to other people. It's an expression of the call on us to live for a far greater cause than just Ourself. And part of the Holy Spirit's role is to take naturally selfish people, because that's what we are, naturally self-centered people, and turn them into a brand new tribe, a brand new community who live for a completely different cause. So what do we do? How do we live this? Okay, well, that, I think there's so much you could say. Okay, you just, you, you read the New Testament through this lens and you'll think, man, there's so much in the Bible about, about how to live, how to, 
how to kind of get on with one another and why it's important to be like that. But I want to talk about one thing to give you as a kind of, as like a little key to open a door, okay? And that came right at the start of Ephesians 4, where Paul says this. I want to urge you, Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's he doing? Paul is reminding us, you're called. In other words, there was a day when you weren't called. Someone called your name. There was a day when you were far away from God and you didn't know him and there's nothing you could do to close the gap between you and him. And God was far higher than you and you were much lower than him. And yet he comes to you. He does, he pays the price for you. He calls your name and he draws you out. He does something in your life that you could never do for yourself. He lifts you up in a way that you could never have lifted yourself. And he does something remarkable for you that you could never have done. Remember, you were called. It wasn't your idea. This Christian thing, this church thing, was never your idea. It was always his idea. He's saying, now remember, you were called. What's he doing? He's elevating. He's reminding you. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've, you know, if you've ever been on a plane or you go to the top of a high building like the Shard or, or, or the Sky Garden or somewhere like that, or you, you, know, you climb a mountain. We all say the same stupid thing. Okay? We all go, oh, don't the cars look small? Okay? We say every time we do that, we always say, because suddenly you get a different perspective. Don't you? you go, man, it's so different up here to down there. Down there it all looks big, but up here it's completely different. Well, that is what Paul is doing. He is elevating you. He's saying, you used to live down there. Now God has done, he's pulled you. You were called. Do you remember where you were? Now what's happened? You were called. What happens in your heart when you're reminded that you were called and where you were and where you are now? What happens? Surely it starts producing you like, gratefulness. Like, I'm a child of grace. I didn't get here by my... It's nothing to do with me. The church doesn't grow because of me. It doesn't grow because of Steve. Or anybody. It's, a, it's an act of God's grace. We get to co-labor. But it's not my doing. It, should, it starts to generate in us a sense of gratitude. It starts to generate in us a sense of humility because we start to realize how big he is, how good he is, and how small I am, and how I didn't deserve anything. And yet I get to participate in what he's doing. It starts to generate humility in us. And Ephesians 4 says this, live a life worthy and according you received. Now, be humble. Then be patient. Bear with one another. That's it. And then it says this, make every effort. How do we make every effort? We remember, I was called. There was a day when I wasn't called, and now I am called. And it's all he's doing. And I'm just a grateful recipient of his goodness. He's done it, I didn't do it. That's why when Paul writes to Corinth, he was a, it's a bit of a crazy church for Corinth, but he writes to Corinth, and they're in the midst of some disunity. There's some problems kicking off in that church. Okay, because some of them are following one leader, one of some of them are following another leader, and there's all this split going on. Now, this is what he says to them. Brothers, sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you wise, not many of you influential, not many of you noble, okay? Basically, he deals with disunity by going, remember where you were when you were called. In other words, you weren't that great, everybody. You were a bit of a mess. Jesus does the same thing, John 16. He says, before he says you're going to go off and bear fruit, he says, 
You didn't choose me, I chose you. So just remember, who started this deal? It wasn't your idea, just to keep you a bit grounded, everybody. John 15, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must be connected to the divine. In other words, you can't bear fruit by yourself. But by the grace of God, you will, if you're connected to me, Jesus says. It's like, remember, remember, remember. This is where you were. This is where I was. This is how small you are. And this is how high I am. And this is how much I love you. And if you get that in your spirit, if you get it in your heart, you start to realize, man, I'm grateful and I'm humbled. And if you get that, then you start to be culture builders and unity givers. Does that, does that make sense? If we live with a constant sense of entitlement, superiority, pride, if that's what stamps us, we're going to find community very difficult to build, and so is everybody else around you. But if you live with a sense of gratitude, a sense of kind of just being glad, amazed at grace, then you will find that community just flows from you because it will matter to you when things aren't quite right and when you've hurt someone. It will matter to you enough that you go and sort it out. So we should think carefully about our lives. We should monitor how we speak. We should be careful about whether we're harboring ill thoughts or unforgiveness. We should be generous with our words and our money. Because one way or the other, we either move a little bit closer to this thing or we pull it a little bit further apart. So I'm going I'm to finish by reading you what Jesus prayed in John 17. And probably as I've spoken, God might have spoken, just dropped a thought in your heart where you think, ah, oh, maybe, maybe you just want me to sort that out. Maybe that person I hurt, I need just to apologize to. Maybe there's something there that you want to do. Okay? And I'm going to read you what John, Jesus prays in John 17 for us about being together and being unified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me.